Hello, I'm Justin Smith, and you're listening to What is AI? Today, we're going to have a conversation with Dr. Jim Fackler. He's a pediatric intensivist at Johns Hopkins, and we're going to discuss how AI will play a role in direct patient care. We also cover the surprising nuances within AI that keep Dr. Fackler up at night. There will also be a great Star Wars reference, so stay tuned. Welcome to What is AI? Yeah, if you want to go ahead and just give us a quick intro and background on yourself, that'd be fantastic. I do pediatric intensive care for a living. Um, I trained in the 80s um, at Hopkins in Baltimore uh, in pediatrics, pediatric intensive care, pediatric anesthesia. Yes, I'm overtrained. Um, and then my first faculty job was uh, at the Children's in Boston. Uh, and this is in the 80s, early 90s. Um, late 80s, early 90s, um, and in the computer science universe, it's when um, Mosaic came to life as a web browser out of the University of Illinois. I think it was called Mosaic, right? And then um, uh, Netscape picked it up, but nonetheless, you know, the internet is in its early days. and actually, I got into all this stuff because I did a, I, in pediatric intensive care, we take care of a lot of kids with um, lethal lung disease. Uh, happens for a variety of reasons. The ac- acronym is ARDS for Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. And you know, in, the, in the 80s, the mortality was in the 40 or 50% range. Wow. Um, uh, we were uh, using a new technology um, at the time called ECMO, which is just basically a heart-lung tr- uh, uh, heart lung machine that you use in the ICU sometimes for weeks on end. Um, and although it worked extraordinarily well for newborns, uh, it was unproven in older kids. Uh, so I helped organize um, a randomized clinical tri- trial, you know, the classic way you prove or disprove things in medicine. Um and could and actually showed ECMO we didn't need, need it, but it was a it, the study was a negative one and it was very difficult um, to publish negative results uh, at the time. It's easy, easier now, but in the early 90s it was um, it was quite hard to do. Anyway, um, the major criticism was. Um, that there was no control in the way the um, children were mechanically ventilated. There wasn't a protocol, there wasn't an algorithm. And at the time, I had met a guy named uh, Zach Kohani, um, and Kohani has gone on to greatness in the field of informatics. He's currently um, uh, runs the Department of uh, Biomedical Informatics at Harvard. Um, but Zach and I got together with one of the ventilator companies, and we actually built a completely automated ventilator um, that adjusted itself automatically based on the inputs from uh, a sensor on your finger that measured the amount of oxygen in your blood, uh, which was really kind of cool, way ahead of its time. Yeah. Uh, we put a patent together on a cable uh, to make devices work, which was also ahead of its time. Um, and fundamentally, then didn't do much um, uh, because the technology wasn't hadn't caught up. 
And so fast forward, oh, I don't know, 25 years, um, and now I'm back at Hopkins, um, and the technology is caught up, and we're now in a place where um, it's not perfect, and you know this all too well, uh, but you can integrate devices, and you can acquire data from an EMR. Um, it's still a bit um, front, uh, still still a bit um, difficult uh, to control devices, but you know, not even going there yet. Uh, the technology is caught up, and frankly, the computing power is caught up. Uh, the math is caught up. The computer science is caught up, and so although. I actually was a card-carrying member of the uh, American Association of Artificial Intelligence, I think going back into the early 90s, could even been the late 80s. Wow, cool. Um, uh, it's just now, frankly, uh, that AI is launched to be, is in a position to be launched into something that's useful. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think kind of it's a fascinating way of thinking about how you guys were on the forefront, you know, 25 years ago plus, where now the other technologies have caught up. So how would you describe, so say you're talking to somebody that's not at all in the field of medicine or mathematics or algorithm building or even computer science, how do you describe to the layperson what artificial intelligence is? Oh, I think everybody understands the concept of autopilot pilot mm -hmm. or cruise control uh, in a car. And so cruise control is um, artificial intelligence. And you, um, yeah, it's not, well, it's, it's, yeah, it, it is. And you have a goal, you set the goal, it's 55 miles an hour if you want to be a law-abiding person on a highway. So you set cruise control at 55, um, but heaven knows you can't fall asleep um, uh, because you're going to be at 55 and if all of a sudden the car in front of you stops, uh, you need to regain control of the car. Yeah. So um, uh, you can either step on the gas, step on the brakes to override cruise control. Um, but that's primitive a AI. I mean, anybody who's been on an airplane, I am certain, understands uh, that most of the flying is done in an automated fashion with two pilots uh, or three if you're on an international flight um, uh, able to take over at any point in time when the when the autopilot is not it shouldn't be engaged um, and you can extend that into um, medicine, I think, with no difficulty at all. Um, there are many people with chronic conditions, and the classic one would be diabetes, where there are cruise controls for your blood glucose. Um, you set a goal, um, you wear a pump, and the pump will regulate in insulin, um, uh, depending on what your glucose is, all the while knowing you've got to come off cruise control um, if you choose to have a big piece of cake or yeah. you're sick and you're it was sick with the flu and your intake is going down. Yeah, so you but still have to... All, 
and you still have to be cognizant of what the machines can do and what they can't do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a great definition. I think it's a, a really tangible way for people to understand that, you know, it's the, the automation of tasks that we are okay, but not great at as humans. Um, I know you've been able to travel kind of this summer uh, into the fall a little bit uh, to go to some pretty interesting meetings. So kind of looking to the things that you've been hearing about or seeing, what's surprised you recently uh, or something that you're kind of working on that you'd like to share with AI, kind of what's current state? Something that you've seen recently, you're like, whoa, that's cool. Well, clearly, uh, I suppose in my mind, uh, the clearest recent advances are all in the field of um, of vision and image analysis. Yeah. Um, and the um, paper from a couple of years ago now um, on diabetic retinopathy um, is has been replicated a number of times now. And so there is, there are becoming um, ubiquitous, not ubiquitous is the wrong term still, but um, at least low cost and potentially ubiquitous um, solutions for getting image analysis done um, of uh, retinas, of um, skin lesions, as I'm sure you know, the FDA has approved a couple of, has approved, I do believe, a, a diabetic retinopathy algorithm. And I know there are a couple of approved uh, image analysis techniques um, in the cardiovascular space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and, you know, and so, so those are there. You know, the, one of the, one of the papers that got a boatload of um, exposure, at least in the lay press that crossed my screen, uh, was this paper that I bet is now six or eight months old um, on um, radiology uh, image analysis and how um, the uh, chest x-rays could, an AI image analysis technique uh, could read chest x-rays with the same precision that a radiologist could. Correct. It was matching the human performance. Yeah. Right. Um, and all that is good, and it's potentially really quite true. Um, the first paper, though, um, only compared it to eight radiologists. Um, mm. And you know, so that's a bit of an overstretch. Yeah. Um, and the other dilemma with that is the images that they used were highly curated. Um, and so they, you know, if you if you uh, cherry pick the pictures and cherry pick the radiologists, well, then you're going to get good results. And the ch- and I'm not I'm not taking anything away from what they did. Uh, my only plea is that we don't overhype this. Yes. Um, uh, and we continue to work in. A reality-based environment. Um, you know, again, to go uh, to go back to my beginning, my roots, and I do p- uh, kids for a living, and I do kids in an in an intensive care environment, and I've got, you know, and I we get chest X-rays all the time, and yeah, we're beginning to work with a group of radiologists here at Hop- Hopkins to do the same thing, but the challenges these guys are up against here with uncurated. 
uh, images across a developmental spectrum that goes from uh, four kilos to 140 kilos, mm. um, where the images are off by 10 or 15 degrees in a random f- fashion that no one, it just, it's the challenges are going to be extraordinary. And we'll get there. We really will. I have no doubt we're going to get there. Um, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah. I think, I think you're kind of, you're kind of pointing out the, the idea that, you know, we're, we're feeding all of our machine learning algorithms currently. And then the, you know, the prequels to AI with these highly curated data sets that have a lot of, you know, uh, trimmings taken away from them so it's just this is this and we're, we're letting the machines train themselves in that whereas you know there's a massive amount of variability especially in biology and medicine where you can have two people look identical on the exterior yet their insides can be completely different and you have to be able to account for that or at least have the algorithms understand that okay this is the normal amount of variability and this is what i've been trained to see um, which again is I, I think we're going to get there it's just taking a little bit of time and that's part of, you know, from my perspective, the idea of it's not perfect yet. Will it get better? Yes, but it takes time and it takes, uh, it does take curation, but not over curation, which is where it gets a little bit scary. So I think the idea that that's a, that's part of what kind of falls into my, my bucket too, of what scares me with AI is that we, we end up feeding it these really curated data sets that lead us down these paths that are too, too focused and finite. Um, and, and I don't think the technology get pigeonholed, but it just won't be as broad of an application as possible. What what scares you with AI? Well, so let me let me follow up uh, because you there were three important concepts, at least three that you dropped in yeah. in, in the analysis there, and I agree with you a hundred percent. You know the very so one of the problems, you know, and the other well, and, and the other thread um, is where AI is going. So image analysis is one, you know, but then there's this whole group of um, investigators, uh, myself included, and trying to um, predict conditions based off data ahead of when the condition can currently be seen. And the classic one is sepsis, uh, life-threatening bacterial infection of the blood, and there's got to be there's got to be at least a hundred groups, fifty, whatever. And, but a large number of research groups working on trying to predict um, when sepsis will begin. Um, and and the problem and so and and everybody at the moment is using retrospective data sets. Mm-hmm. And, Mimic is one. Um, the, the Philips has put out um, a massive set of ICU da- data um, from adult universes, um, uh, and so there's 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 a lot of data available. But he, but the problem with predicting sepsis is we've turned we've we're pushing these ret- we're pushing people to make a binary decision retrospectively on a set of data and that sepsis yes or no in an environment where the variability is rather enormous yes uh and although we can in my opinion we should be doing hypothesis testing and algorithm uh, what would be a uh, uh, 
in developing basically hypothesis algorithms in these retrospective analyses, all these algorithms need to be rigorously tested prospectively. And the clinicians that are doing the testing are going to need to do a little bit of a mind reset um, and start getting better at um, not even numerically, but semi-quantitatively communicating degrees of ambiguity. Yes. Uh, Because um, medicine isn't binary. Yeah. Um, And sepsis isn't binary and uh, pneumonia is not binary. Um, Even diabetic retinopathy isn't binary um, and so one and so that so you you you, be, you began this with what scares me yeah um, I with the actually the biggest thing that scares me in all these algorithms are the false ne- negatives yeah. so to do that to go into that in one step more detail so we've developed an algorithm uh, we can predict Based, based on a retrospective data set in our pediatric intensive care unit, we, we can do a reasonable job of predicting sepsis 24 hours in advance. We do a better job six hours in advance, and we do an even better job two hours in advance. But even in that two to six hour range, our positive predictive value, uh, the number of times we sound an alarm and the kid is actually sick is only one in five times. Mm. We did it anyway, another, another group um, we were working with using adult data, they got their positive predictive value up to one in three, um, which sounds awful. And frankly, it is. Except that um, what It depends on what you're going to do with the alarm. Mm -hmm. If what you want to do with the alarm is automatically inject a dose of antibiotics, well, that's a very bad idea uh, because four out of five times you're going to be wrong. If, though, you use the alarm to say to um, a doc or a nurse or anybody, uh, you know, Billy might be sick. Why don't you go take a look? And, oh, by the way, one out of five times you go to look, you're going to save a life. Yeah. That sounds like a great thing to me. Um, and so I have no trouble, you know, inching into this algorithm-driven pattern matching. And this is what computers do com- that humans can't do. The, the AI and the, uh, and the math and the data analytics, they are clearly going to see patterns in the data that humans can't do. What the humans then need to do is get up and go take a look at the patient and either agree or disagree. And the good news is if they agree and say, you're right, I'm worried the algorithm is correct, um, then you're in a position to start therapy earlier and presumably save lives, save costs, improve. Okay, all like, okay, but but what really worries me is are the false negatives. And those are the ones where when we finally get to the point where we're trusting the machines 
to do the right thing and the machines get it wrong and we don't recognize that the machine was in over its head and somebody has a bad outcome because the machine, because the humans were inappropriately reassured by the lack of an alarm. That drives me crazy. That's what makes me that. Uh, that's what that's what keeps me awake at night are the false negatives. Yeah, the over reliance. And we're on... not and and we're not there yet, but um, it's we're it's going to come, yeah. uh, and we just have to hope. We just got to be it, the, this. So, you know, I talked about re-education, um, you know, of docs being able to semi, at least semi-quantitatively handle ambiguity. There's going to be a, there's going to need to be a lot of re-education on what it is a, an algorithm can do and the doc of the future or the nurse of the future or even, um, you know, the friend of someone who's ill and people are going to need to be cognizant of what these machines can do and what they can't. Yeah, recognize limitations and also understand that Precisely. they're not going to be they're not going to be perfect just as we're not perfect as humans. I think that's the that also is something that, you know, I think addressing it as a major concern and then understanding the ambiguity around it. Uh, I think you framed it really well. We're saying, look, we're having an alert going off uh, four out of five times it's wrong, but one out of five times it's correct. Can you just go take a look, human being? And keeping Correct. keeping the human in the loop with their kind of expertise. Again, to go back to the pilot, you know, example, where yeah, most of the flying at this point is done by the, the computers, autopilot. But you want the human there, so if something horrible happens, you're able to crash land onto the ocean, uh, which just happened recently. Well, right. Well, and to follow up on that one, you know, so this is a classic. Um, um, and I have no idea what what Scully was de- dealing with when he put the plane down on the Hudson. But, you know, I'm certain if you're approaching the ground and you're, um, and the landing gear isn't down, there's got to be horrible noises in the cockpit. You know, that's got to be an alarm Correct. That, uh, that drowns out all other alarms. Unless you're landing on wa- water. Uh, and then you can't have the landing gear down. So, so even these, even and so that's even the most strident, noisy, ninety-nine point nine nine percent correct alarms are still going to need humans um, to know when you just can't use them. <laughs> yeah. When when is it appropriate not to trust the machine? Yeah. Right. And that's right. and that's it's a big, it's a big deal. It is a big right. deal, and I think that's the other part of it too, where uh, you know, as we're sitting at this point in history, we're understanding that machines right now are okay, maybe not great, but they will get much, much better in the future. But still, be able to build in that trust to say, look, we want to say to the human, you have, you know, the human operator, the, the expert, you have the ability to, at any point to override this, and yes, we'll hold you responsible, but we also want you to know that that's something that you should be able to do. And, and kind of the idea of celebrating that, why this is why I stepped in. And, and hopefully the, the scenarios would be fairly clear, like landing on water without the landing gear down. Um, but, but I think that's something too, or the, as you're talking about the idea of ambiguity, it's, it's really important to sort of understand that concept versus it's, I think as human beings and, you know, psychology is, it's just easy to become complacent. So, ah, no, no, it's fine. Autopilot will take care of that. My self-driving car. I don't need to tap the brakes when in reality you probably should be paying attention and tapping the brakes. Um, well, and so there is a, 
dead person in Arizona um, where exactly that ha- happened. And again, I have no insight into that, into the into the um, the autonomous car pedestrian disaster than what's in the lay press. Um, but my understanding is that the um, this woman who was walking her bicycle across the street was identified by the software as a false positive. Um, hence, there wasn't any need for the car to break. But uh, the person, the back of the driver, was watching TV. Yeah, uh, and it's just we can't do and 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 having said that okay so that's a disaster but then let me and it really is i want to take nothing away from it and that's what we're trying to avoid that's really what we're trying to avoid but again air traffic air air travel is um by far the safest in per passenger mile um, and I've not seen the data on it, but I've got to believe that um, at least over time, the, the safest travel will end up being in an autonomous car uh, with, obviously, uh, a driver who's paying attention and knows the limits of what the autonomous software can do. Yeah, yeah. The idea of kind of working together, I think that's something where that's coming through in a lot of our conversations of, you know, AI gets really good at what it's good at and humans become better at, you know, how to use the AI to augment their their abilities and kind of working in tandem or symbiosis. Uh, that's when you kind of get this uh, enhanced performance, perhaps. But another, another well, con- oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. And I was going to say, when I do this, when, when I do a talk like this with slides, and I've got a sequence from a 40-year-old movie movie uh, that, in my mind, makes this point extraordinarily extraordinarily well, and it's the first Star Wars movie. Uh, Yes. Uh, Well, you know, where Luke is going in to blow up the Death Star, and I get it, and we're here trying to save lives, and Luke is, he saved lives, he saved the rebels. Um, But he... If you remember the scene, yep. Um, is it he? He's flown his um, uh, plane at the yes, and the, the X-wing, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. You know. Oh, good. Okay. So he flew into this gully, and R two D two is in the back, and R two D two is uh, giving him directions, and he's got his uh, and is blowing people up behind, and then. Um, uh, okay, Harrison Ford. Who is uh, who is he playing? Uh, oh man, uh, uh, Harris- yeah, Harrison Ford's character. Yeah, Han Solo. Yeah, okay. yep. <laughs> yeah. So he flies the Millennium Fal- Falcon, yep, right? Yep. Uh, in and blows Darth Vader off into the next mo- movie. Um, <laughs> but but when so you know teamwork is still important here. But when Luke needs to blow the Death Star up. He did it by hand, you know, and you can hear, you know, use the force, Luke, um, in his mind, and that's intuition. So, you know, and, you know, all the people on the rebel, uh, at the rebel base uh, who are trying to oversee the whole thing with a huge mainframe um, are just speechless. Um, but what Luke understood was the limits of what his software could do because he was now beyond where... Um, anything had been mapped 
and he used his intuition and blew the thing up and saved the world at least for next sequels or prequels or whatever. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, but it and it and it's a forty-year-old, but it makes extraordinary sense, you know. And so, docs um, of the future are frankly going to need to hone their force, mm-hmm. um, and it's going to. And the and the intuition is going to be uh, what the human, as near as I can tell, will add forever. Uh, in addition, you know, so in addition to being able to hold a hand and make a human connection, and which is um, what healthcare was like a hundred years ago, and because that's all you could do, and so you know, the optimist here would say um, the machines are going to take care of all the drudgery that we currently do so we can go back to using the force guiding the machines doing the best that is possible with the ai human uh, but also then being able to hold hands and do the human thing too yeah to be to to be able to show that compassion and empathy so is is that what you would say kind of gets you excited about ai in the future the drudgery is gone uh when everything's all said and done what you know what um, what drives me crazy is the variability in care, particularly in environments where we know exactly what to do. Um, and it makes a difference on how much sleep I've had, uh, whether I've had a uh, high sugar meal or a high fat meal. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of you know, and whether two thirds of the team is kind of ill because we've got the flu going. Go- going around and there's the variability in healthcare delivery is just in my mind utterly unacceptable um, and that's where AI fits and some of it is um, some of it's not terribly um, uh, conceptually difficult you know it's just uh, automating a lot of the processes and doing the same thing over and over again uh, but I. But you asked what excites me, yeah. um, and what excites me is a vision where uh, the variability in care is driven only by an individual patient's needs and desires, not because I've had a good night's sleep or a bad night's sleep. Um, uh, and we're and I and I I really do believe we'll get get there. Yeah, I think I yeah I think that's a really good point of the. The idea with as we start to collect more and more data on both patients and providers um, and just, you know, human beings as we're interacting with the world as we are today with the decrease in cost and sensors and their increase in quality, we'll be able to recognize those variabilities um, much more uh, precisely, I think would be a way to think about it and kind of iron those out across, across the spectrum. So, you know, if you're getting care in, you know, the West Coast of the United States, and you're going to get care in the East Coast of the United States, they should be very, very similar and kind of going across the whole portion of the middle part of the country, too. So Correct. You know, it should be, yeah, no, I'm with it. And we should all be getting the same quality of care, um, knowing that there are different, um, there are clearly dif- differences in across populations, um, uh, ac- across cohorts, um, depending on what underlying um, chronic conditions are around. And then, you know, we can even get in then to um, what 
cultural difference and what personal preferences are. Um, And we can start having those conversations in earnest, um, particularly if you take all the background um, noise out and we'll just start getting to what really makes a difference uh, at a personal level. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that'll be really, really incredible. And I, I, I think you're starting to see it. I'm starting to see it a little bit too, but that's the future we're building towards. Um, of course, we all want it to happen tomorrow, but it's, I, I think we're, we're making headway. And at least everybody that I'm kind of interacting with has the same goal in mind for on the, on the very, very far, you know, long-term scare or long-term uh, time frame. So as a provider, and you know, this is kind of your perspective working with other providers, what, what do you see as the greatest barrier to adoption of artificial intelligence or that, that idea of you're no longer working solo as a human being, but you have a machine there helping you? Oh, I think to a very real, real extent, it's cultural. Okay. Um, now one of the challenges is we, so again, my my practice is hospital-based, and I'm in an intensive care unit. Um, and actually, I'm, I'm in the hospital where the concept of rounds were was invented 120 years ago, wow. um, or so I think. Um, and so, if Osler, who is uh, said to have invented rounds, if Osler came back today he would be blown away by a number of things. Um, he'd be blown away at the imaging, you know, the, you know, the machines, the technology. Um, he'd be annoyed that the doctors um, spent so few hours at the hospital now. Um, but if he was on rounds, he would recognize them. Um, and I can't, I'm not given this thought, but and maybe we could chat it, right? But, <laughs> I can't, what other industry could you bring somebody back into after having been out of it for 120 years and recognize, still recognize one of the core processes? And even agriculture, uh, I know you're still growing corn, you're still growing wheat, but I can't imagine a farmer from 120 years ago coming back and being able to drop back into uh, a workflow and be useful at all yeah that's it. it's great so so uh, so medicine has we've been doing the same we have we have simply ramped up the old workflows um, to meet a higher level of demand and have and a higher level of complexity and and have and with some exceptions um, you know and I've not been inside a Kaiser institution, um, you know, so, but Kaiser is thinking differently and Geisinger is thinking dif- differently. Uh, but I bet they're still doing rounds the same way I make rounds uh, on a daily basis when I'm on ser- service here. So, you know, so the impediments are, in my mind, cultural. Um, and to some extent, it's still technology, but the technology is increasing and I am at least a philosophical fan of Ray Kurzweil um, and on the concept of exponential growth. Um, uh, and technology really is growing exponentially. Um, the culture and 
the cultures in the workflow um, and change, changing those uh, are going to be is the hardest part. In, yeah, uh, yeah. Healthcare. At least that's where I that's where I think. Yeah, and, and I, I think you mentioned it's a great point. The idea of somebody coming back from 120 years ago and being able to, to step back into the workflow is I haven't thought about it that way. It's pretty profound, um, which I think is profound in a couple of ways. One that things haven't changed that much in terms of rounding, but at the same time, that's such a fundamental process of providing care is, you know, rounding on the patients and doing those assessments kind of as, as you go. I think that's, that's a very core tenant to, uh, you know, being a provider. Uh, well, right. But if the machines are, if the machines, you know, and the, the sensors, and you'd say I said it, you know, the the, uh, the sensors are getting uh, are getting better and smaller and cheap cheaper, and we are going to have more sensor da- data, um, and and we need the machines to analyze that, and yes, we need to and and and. We need to we need to make rounds. Right? We need to see the patients. We need to talk to the patients. We need to talk to the fa- families. Um, but um, my guess is we could actually sit down and talk to them more if we had the machines, um, or we were able to display a um, full body hologram, you know, in the room and chat with the patient or the family about exactly what's going on uh, and explain it in an image that, uh, you know, with the patient, Um, you know, there, and it's, there's all sorts of ways of rethinking the workflow um, outside this 120 year old arc. Now in my mind, archaic vision of rounds. Those, those constructs that are still kind of hanging on. So I think you mentioned something that's really interesting. The idea of, you know, having conversations around about patients, you know, surrounding a holographic image that you can zoom in and out of and it's three dimensional. Everybody can kind of, you can literally point and touch, you know, virtually things that you're talking about. So that I would say is uh, maybe medium to long term. but what, what do you see kind of coming on the horizon is uh, applications of AI or, or tools that involve AI that you're excited about or, or even the places where you think it should go kind of on that medium to long term horizon. They, um, uh, let me, so the short, actually the easiest one to answer is one you didn't ask. So let me just drop that. And then <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The short it, one. And it, and it gives some thought. And so in the shortest term, I do think these predictive algorithms are going to start to, um, become more ubiquitous and, um, and become frankly commercial. Uh, and, uh, and that I would put in the uh, two to three year range. Okay. Um, in the and I see and I haven't played with um, augmented re- reality enough. Um, uh, but I would see augmented reality, and where I'm going in my head is. Um, uh, is making uh, explanations and having having a more in-depth conversation with patients um, uh, a, 
about what's wrong and what the options are and um, what the most likely trajectories are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can see doing that with the, in an augmented reality sort of way. So it's, and so, and when we, or when I'm at the bedside and I'm trying to puzzle through a patient I don't completely understand, uh, you know, sometimes look at, people look at me and think I'm asleep, and really I've got my eyes closed, I, and I'm trying to build a picture, really a three-dimensional picture of the person's body in my head to try and figure out, you know, how all these different anomalies are interacting with each uh, other. Interesting. And if I was able to do that with a real display of some sort, um, you know, then, then I could have a conversation with the, with the patient and even project what I'm thinking. Um, and they could look at that and say, yeah, doc, I agree. Or no, that's not exactly right. I, my pain really isn't there. It's really down a little bit. Um, and off to the left, and now all of a sudden you're having a much more meaningful conversation with the patient. Or, you know, again, I do intensive care for a living, and death and dying is just, it's just a fact of life here. Um, and making difficult decisions about what um, therapies to use and what therapies not to use. Um, I could see, um, because, you know, having done this before, and if I choose therapy X, you know, I can see the path for the next week and a half because I've done this before. You choose the path Y, I've seen that before. Uh, And, you know, explain that to a patient, it's um, really quite difficult. Um, I could see, you know, plotting out alternative realities based on choices made right now um, in an augmented reality type environment. And for all I know, there's three groups working on this, and I just don't know about it. But I, so you, you, this began as a digression on what's medium long term. Um, and I think longer term, uh, there a number of these processes are really just going to be automated. Um, um, you're going to have a um, ventilator, uh, uh, mechanical ven- ventilator to su- support someone with bad lung disease. Uh, it's going to um, not hook itself up, but once hooked up, um, uh, almost on an autopilot, make an effort to all by itself understand what lung mechanics are like and adjust the ventilators and um, uh, keep the parameters within relatively tight controls. And um, so there will be a lot, a lot of um, closed loop. Yeah, um, the feedback will be built right. into those systems. Right, controls eventually. And But that's more, that's going to take some time. That's yeah. 10, 15 years off. Yeah, wow, I... It gets me optimistic for the future, mostly because I think we can start to see some of those uh, burgeoning technologies starting now. Um, they're not quite here yet, but they're, they're getting close, and I think we have really 
really intelligent people dabbling in it right now, uh, which will be Correct. which would be really fascinating to see. I, you're talking kind of in the inpatient setting. I think one of the, my mind drifts, you know, pretty easily to the outpatient setting where if you've got wearables on you and you're starting to see, you can get kind of your morning health report as you're checking the news and checking the weather. You know, it's <laughs> how did you sleep last night? How's your diet looking? How's your exercise level? Uh, and kind of tune that so that you're you feel like before you get to an inpatient setting or, you know, you get sick or, or acquire a chronic disease, um, how, you know, you have that feedback coming back to you as how healthy are you? And that's the, kind of the idea with, you know, the population health and wellness happens outside of, you know, the four walls of clinics and hospitals. Um, I, I think that that'll be pretty powerful too. And then be able to take that same idea and apply it to the inpatient setting is also phenomenal. It'd be really Really amazing to kind of uh, see yeah, where we go. Right, I have, I absolutely agree. And uh, well, and yeah, you know, the same, the 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 quantified self movement has been around for ten or fifteen years, and the sensors are now becoming uh, sophisticated enough and cheap enough. And I think the current Apple Watches and others in the same space uh, are perfect demonstrations of that. Um, you know, the challenge is. Um, cultural again. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some people that just won't wear these things. Um, and, you know, there's a limit to what you can do. Yeah. The, the individuals that don't want to know. And that's... Yeah. Right. Well, and those are... That's what makes this whole thing fun. Like yeah. We've all got our own... Well, yeah, and we've all got our own personalities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I think that's a, that's a fantastic way to think about it. So, Jim, where can we learn more about your work? Um, it's, uh, at the moment, it's all on PubMed. Okay. Uh, and so we're publishing, uh, not at an extraordinarily rapid pace, um, but we've got papers coming out, um, every couple of months. Um, I currently do not have a web page. um. I will hope one day I will have a startup that uh, is actually building some, some something that I can um, bring to market, to actually to bring a number of these um, concepts uh, to life. Uh, because again, you know, I'm in an academic environment, uh, and if all we do is talk, then um, and don't build anything, I, all we've done is talk. <laughs> um, so my goal is to. Uh, get some of this um, into the marketplace, but still, at the moment, um, uh, I'm one step uh, short of having anything I can put out on the web. But we're getting there. Yeah, well, I think PubMed's a great place, you know, for people to find things uh, very publicly, and so everybody can follow on kind of where your thought process and where you guys are going right now. Uh, yep. Jim, thank you so much for your time today. This has been fantastic. Oh, I was delighted. This this is fun. Um, and we'll enjoy um, listening to uh, the chats you've had with um, other folks too. Uh, yeah. It's just uh, it's frankly this is the this is moving so fast. Uh, you know, one of the problems with PubMed is it's really slow. Um, uh, where if you're really going to follow follow this, uh, you almost need a uh, daily GitHub feed, but. It's a great point. Uh, these conversations are uh, good to keep pace too. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that I didn't, I, I, have, I haven't thought about that idea of a daily GitHub feed, but I think that's a pretty incredible way to think about it. Mostly from my, you know, background in neuroscience where I had that moment of you're never going to know it all. And I think the same way with this field, it's, it's moving so rapidly. You're not gonna be able to keep pace with all the different branches as it goes into, you know, more, more depth. And so kind of gleaming those highlights or even building the AI to say, Hey, what you're working on these are the things you should probably start to consider (laughs) that's 100% correct that would be another very useful use of AI yeah keeping us all up to date yeah it'd be pretty powerful awesome well Jim thank you very much Uh, thanks Jeff enjoy the rest of your day and uh, hopefully fall goes well All right, we'll talk soon thank you take care bye bye right. bye bye I'm so grateful that Dr. Fackler was able to take the time to have the conversation on AI. We covered a lot of ground. One of the big take-homes, I think, from my perspective is that idea that humans will always have a role constantly guiding and trading artificial intelligence at some level. Uh, The other part that we discussed that I thought was very powerful was the idea of false negatives, right? When there is a result that appears negative when when it should not be negative. So essentially when something that AI says is not important really is, and that has potential for tragic consequences in medicine. Uh, the, other, the other part I think that really kind of will keep me thinking for a long time is that future state role where artificial intelligence and augmented reality are able to be used in real time for providers when they're providing care at the bedside to be able to see inside that patient and explain what's happening to the patient's family and the patient. Uh, that that's going to be a profound impact on the way we're able to provide medicine in the future. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to connect with me and continue the conversation, you can find me at justinsmithphd.com. <laughs>